If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. Today, I'm excited to talk with Brian Saber. Brian is one of our sector's preeminent experts in the art and science of asking for charitable gifts face-to-face. He's been working with nonprofit organizations for nearly 40 years to help unlock their fundraising potential. He's personally solicited thousands of donors as a director of development, an executive director, a board member, a board chair, and a consultant. Brian harnesses all of that fundraising frontline experience to become a very sought-after trainer, coach, and consultant all across the U.S. and around the world. In 2008, Brian co-founded Asking Matters with our mutual friend, Andrea Kilstead. Asking Matters is the most comprehensive online resource on asking that's available in our field. And Asking Matters is home to Asking Styles, a revolutionary concept in the field that helps people understand and embrace their unique strengths as fundraisers. Brian is also the author of not just one, not just two, but four books. <laughs> Asking Styles, like where do you find the time, Brian? Asking Styles revolutionized your fundraising, hailed by the late Jerry Panis as the best antidote I've read on taking the fear out of asking. And I'm going to talk with you about Jerry in our conversation mm-hmm. today. Another book, Boards and Asking Styles, A Roadmap to Success. Engaged Boards Will Fundraise, How Good Governance Inspires Them. And in his latest masterpiece, Fundraising for Introverts, Harnessing Our Power for What Matters. Brian, welcome to the show. I am delighted to be on it and for us to finally have time together. We've both been in this field a long time, crisscrossing the country, and but rarely in the same place, it seems. You're at one conference, I'm at another. You're on one podcast, I'm on another, and here we are. At last, here we are. Let's start by talking about your new book, Fundraising for Introverts. I've got my copy here. It's getting a little banged up because I keep reading it and then going back and referencing some sections that I want to reread. I love this book because it really helps debunk some common misconceptions. Number one, that the best fundraising professionals are these gregarious, talkative experts. And that's simply not true. Talk to us about the attributes of introverts and extroverts and what the data says about extroverts and introverts generally and within the profession. We should start by acknowledging that we are two introverts talking to each other. Which is a miracle. Not really, actually. So not really. Right. You know, people think that introverts are hermits who don't like to socialize. And I've lately been watching these memes scroll online because now I'm really following a lot of introvert bloggers and stuff and all these jokes about it. We love people. We We like interacting. I mean, we just don't do it in 
crowds. We like to go deeper. We like fewer but deeper relationships. And we do need time to refuel, even when we're with the people we care about most, because it takes a certain energy. So yes, we're both introverts. We are. And we've been in this field and doing a pretty good job, it seems, for a long time. People have been pretty happy with us. For 25 years, I fundraised frontline. I was either the director of development or the executive director. I worked in the field full time. And I always thought I was a bit of a, a charlatan, a fake, because I hate special events. I hate talking on the phone. I really don't like meeting new people. One of the things that just honestly puts fear in me is the idea of walking up to someone I don't know and saying hello, which shocks people since we, like you, I speak all over the country in front of big crowds. I do webinars all the time, but it's very different. And actually, if you talk to actors, many actors are shy, right? It's one thing to be on a stage at a podium talking to a couple hundred people. And it's another to be in the crowd. I'm very intimidated by going up to people and starting a conversation. And I always thought there must be people who can do what I do and do this other stuff, that I'm probably not the best person for this job. And it really took developing the asking styles with Andrea, our dear friend, now 14 years ago, for me to understand what I brought to the table and finally feel good about what I had done for 25 years. My employers, the various nonprofits, were very happy with my fundraising. And I knew I was doing a good job with larger individual gifts and foundations, corporations and such, but I felt there was this big hole and this really helped bring it together. So the asking styles, one of the two characteristics they're based on is this extroversion, introversion dichotomy. So then I started to dig deeper into that. And that's what eventually led me to fundraising for introverts because yeah, there are a lot of books in the field now on introverts. Of course, Susan Cain's Quiet, which probably every introvert owns. Yeah. It's like our Bible was a revelation. And I recommend it to everyone all the time. And that book gave me so much confidence and so much perspective. So there are lots of resources now for introverts. It was funny, as this book came out, I went on Facebook. I'm really not on Facebook personally because I don't socialize that way. I'm not on social media personally because it's an uncomfortable place, but there are huge introvert groups there. There are a lot of books on introverts that have been written introverts in the business world, this and that. Some of them I quote in my book, but I thought, you know what? We need our own book because we're out there, right? According to Myers-Briggs, more than half of all people are introverts, but let's say only half are. Well, if half of all fundraisers aren't, then a lot of people who should be at the table aren't at the table. And actually from all our conversations, I'm sure you feel the same way. We know there are lots of us in our field. We talk to each other about it. And I wanted to finally put this myth to rest, right? To reflect back on what you said at the beginning here, to debunk this myth that there's this stereotype and you have to be this type of person who loves meeting new people all the time and can just throw themselves in a crowd and bring that creative energy and whatever that's helpful and useful in some parts of fundraising. But at the core, it's about building relationships. We know where the big money comes from, the money that moves our organization to the next level, those 
big gifts that create endowments, that start new programs, the types of gifts that Mackenzie Scott is making. What an amazing woman, right? Those gifts come from relationships with individuals and we build deep relationships. So I wanted people to understand that and all the ways that introversion and uh, impacts our field, all the way introverted donors and board members and others are part of our field because it's not just us as introverted fundraisers, but who we're interacting with and who's leading our organizations. And I think that's such an important point. It is as important for other people to understand the strengths and the dynamics of introverts, because we do need to work together. Yes. And there's value in both. Yes. But I also think one of the things I love is this gives a new set of tools and illuminate for ourselves, we introverts, that we're not imposters. You know, there's a lot of talk, a lot of reading a lot of conversations about this imposter syndrome. And I think it just like you described, like maybe I'm not really cut out for this. Maybe I am faking it when I have to ramp myself up to be on for an event or for a cocktail reception where I know I'm going to have to like interrupt people and introduce myself like Oh, cringe, interrupt a conversation to introduce myself to people I don't really know. It's like it does take a lot of emotional energy. And it's easy for us to think we're imposters, but we're not. We're just introvert. Right. 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 Yes. And yeah, and we should embrace that because there's no better or worse. It's just different. And there has been a bias forever towards extroverts. Yes. Huge bias. I quote one author in the book who studied introversion in the workplace, in the corporate workplace. And it has been proven that as you go up the corporate ladder, there are fewer and fewer introverts. Now you could say, well, introverts don't seek out that spotlight or whatever, but it's actually not that it's that they're not being valued the same way. And I'm sure you've seen it. You've had lots of clients over the years as I do. I've had development directors who are more introverted who will say my executive director it doesn't think I'm doing a good job because I'm not doing A or B. And that executive director just isn't understanding the value that the director of development is bringing, right? Because there is a bias. You think you've got to be the schmoozer. And I can go do that to some extent probably more of an extent than a lot of introverts do. I learned from an early age how to present myself and, and be seen as confident how I wanted to be seen in the world. So I do it, but at great expense, (laughs) it takes so much psychic energy. I'm wiped out after it. And that's not my sweet spot. It's not for many, but that isn't the whole game. And so here we are. Yeah. You know, I remember a story, Jim Rohn, who was a leadership guru, author in the 90s. I know you've, I'm sure you're nodding. You've heard of him. He gives this analogy. He said, there are two kinds of people and he's mostly speaking to salespeople. He said, there are two kinds of people. There's the person who shows up at the party and walks in and says, ta-da, here I am. (laughs) And then there is the person that walks in the room and says, ah, 
there you are. And I think that speaks to those deeper, more intimate yes. relationships that introverts gravitate to. Oh, I love that. I love that. Tada versus here you are. Yeah. Well, I talk about this all the time. I, I'm sure I do in the book. If I go to an event, anything, I try to find one person to talk to the whole time. And if that person's happy talking to me and doesn't leave, I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to go find someone else. I'm going to talk to that person for an hour, two hours. That's my comfort zone and my interest zone. I'd rather go deeper and really learn about this one person than get updates from a bunch of people, right? And introduce myself to a bunch of people. And to your point of, you know, I'm here versus, oh, you're here, right? Let's not forget that if your introverted donors come to your events and there's a big question there. And one of the things, if I can't convince for any other reason, if I can't convince an organization to put the brakes a bit on special events and that they can't just be special events, if nothing else convinces them, I say to them, if all you have is fundraising events, you're missing out on a lot of donors. I never go to a fundraising event. I never go, you know, sit at a table. I'll do anything but go. I might make a token gift instead of going if it's someone very close to me, but I will do anything not to go. And you're not going to necessarily even find your introverted donors at these events, right? They're the ones who are going to be much more excited to meet one-on-one. -on -one. Yes. What a brilliant point. Right? Half of all donors are introverts. Period. Yes. There's nothing that says introverts or extroverts contribute more or less. I don't think there's any research on that. And I think it would be hard pressed to find it. So half of our donors were introverts. And here you are having special events all the time that they don't want to come to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Such a great point. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too. I, mean, I just wonder about the career trajectory of introverts mm. versus extroverts in terms of who they do really resonate with and who they do gravitate to or what fundraising channels they have the most success in. Yeah, it's interesting. At the end of the day, I believe in talking really bluntly about our fields, okay? We are not fundraising for the most part because, oh my, do we love fundraising. There's nothing I'd rather do in my life than get out there and you know, schmooze another person. And, what, and I'm not trying to say I don't enjoy meeting people, at, but we're doing it because we care deeply. And introverts care deeply. Everything we do is deep. We're very emotional. We look deeper inside coming up for things. So of course we care about nonprofits and we want to help. I never thought I was going to be a fundraiser. I just was a do-gooder. I left college in 1984 it was the height of corporate whatever, and I just didn't want it. And I thought, I want to work in an arts organization, performing arts, love the performance. And I went to a theater, and then the next thing I knew, I, I became the executive director of a teeny dance company. It had maybe a $300,000 budget. And I actually then had a business degree, too, a whole other trajectory. And they thought, oh, my, someone with a business degree in 1987 wants to run this little dance company for $30,000 a year. We'll take them. Okay. So I got the job and I was the only staff person. So I did the fundraising. I didn't want to do the fundraising, but I wanted this dance company to be successful. It was an incredible 
company for many reasons, an important company in Chicago where I was living. And so I, I did the fundraising. I mean, most of us fell into it. Maybe one in a thousand, 10,000 say, oh, I always wanted to be a fundraiser, right? <laughs> All to say there are a lot of introverts doing this because we're passionate. There are a lot of introverts who join boards, not because they like the social aspect of a board, but in spite of it, yeah. right? And we better take care of those introverted board members because they're important in many ways. We're doing it because we care. And most people are fundraising because they care, introvert or extrovert. But let's remember that we are at the table. Yes, you might find more introverts doing grant writing and research because that's you know, all the sciences have more introverts, the people who sit and toil by themselves, people who get law degrees and spend years with those law books in the library by themselves. It takes a certain amount of introversion ability to just be by yourself and such. So there are certain fields, I think, that lend themselves a little more to introversion or extroversion. But overall, I think there's a place for us everywhere. Because yeah. as, as important as the grant proposal is, you and I know that at the end of the day, it's the relationship with the funder. It's right. not the proposal. You have to back up what you're saying, but people give to people. Absolutely. Right? And many of our listeners, I'm sure, and both you and I, we've had that experience where we have carefully curated and developed the deep relationship with the donor, the donor who has the private family foundation. and. The application is a technicality. Not that it doesn't mm -hmm. need to be quality and well done, yes. but to your point, it really is about the relationship. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, all the big gifts I got were based on relationship, not something in writing. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like our introverts who might be listening are feeling maybe a little bit seen right now. That's my hope. I want them to feel seen and heard and acknowledged. And I want our extroverts to also like pause and say, yes, these are my skill sets. And I want them to see value in their introvert. Elaborate a bit more on what makes introverts surprisingly great fundraisers. Yes. And I'm going to do that, but I just had a thought. This is another aha moment I've had as I've been researching all this. How often does the extrovert say, oh, come on, no, come on to the bar, you know, come to the bar. The introvert never says to the extrovert, don't go to the bar, don't go to the bar. <laughs> What's the difference? <laughs> Why is it better to go to the bar than not go to the bar? It's just different. Okay. And I thought about so that. So true. I, um, I don't know if you'd know Rob Acton of Cause Strategy Partners out of New York. They train people to sit on board. Wonderful organization. Rob's a friend of mine. He's actually out here where I live now for a few days. And just in a text this morning, he invited me out with some people. And I'm thinking, oh, no. And he'll probably think, why not? And I'm thinking, why should it be a group of people? <laughs> yes. So our number one skill is listening. The great Jerry Panis, and you mentioned at the beginning, Jerry has said no one ever listened themselves out of a gift, right? Listening is one of the most important skills in fundraising because the goal is to learn about the donor, not tell the donor everything about our organization. Yeah. If you talk too much, you create this wall of words, as I talk about in the book. 
where the donor probably isn't even taking in anymore everything you say or isn't remembering the most important things. What you want to do as a fundraiser, and I really believe this is best practice, is to listen and let the donor talk, to ask the donor questions about themselves, about their philanthropy, to find out from the donor what they want to learn about. And introverts, by nature, talk less and listen more. Yeah. We not only talk less, but right, the science shows, and I, I, I really delve into the science in the book because I want people to understand this isn't just a choice. This isn't whatever. This is how we are built. This is our DNA. We have longer brain pathways. When we think uh, deeper, we go into our past memories more and have a more detailed thought process before sharing our idea. And so we need time to do that. And that means more thinking, less talking, waiting to talk until we've thought through. Whereas extroverts think on their feet. So they talk to think, they process out loud. Andrea and I working together finally realized after years of working together, and I love the way she tells the story in the book about, you know, how eventually I would just close down because she was throwing all these great ideas out at me, but I couldn't process them that quickly. And I needed time to step back and think. Listening, stepping back and thinking invites the donor in. And that's so important to building a relationship because at the end of the day, here's another one of those parables, I guess, or adages. We remember the least of what we've heard. We remember much more of what we ourselves say and do. And we will always remember the most about how we feel or felt. And if the donor is doing the talking, if we're asking questions and showing we're interested, then the donor's going to walk away feeling really good. And so relative to listening is curiosity, having a deep curiosity for people. And I, I don't know that introverts have more curiosity, but because we have this tendency to sit back and watch and listen, we are better observers, just like you're talking or you're listening, you're either observing or you're the one being observed and we're much more comfortable observing. It's probably why I love the performing arts so much. I get to just sit back and observe. As a matter of fact, I hate interactive, what do they call it? Where they break the fourth wall and they interact with the audience. I forgot what the name is, but it makes me cringe. I don't want this the spotlight. No eye contact. No eye contact. I guess you can make eye contact with me, but don't talk to me. I mean, don't point to me or bring me up on stage or anything. And I think when, in the performing arts, I'm in a comfort zone of sitting back and observing and absorbing. So listening, observing, really key. And I think those are key to building really deep relationships. You can't have a really deep relationship without learning a lot about the other person. And you need to leave that space for the person to open up and come to you with whatever they want to talk about, whatever's on their mind. Yeah. You know, as I've done major gift work and coached and trained major gift officers or individuals working in that space, I often will say, let's have a plan for this visit. Like as a result of this visit, what is it that you want the donor to know, feel, or do? What more do you want to know about them? And so go in with 
a handful of questions you can draw upon, like what's been your most meaningful giving experience? And it doesn't even have to be with us. You know, what do you want to accomplish through your giving? When you think about nonprofits, who does it best and why? And really to your point, listen. And I also find that some of the best fundraisers are more comfortable in the quiet space. Yes. Some folks are not comfortable pauses in the space. Yeah. When I teach the intentional conversation and how you lead up to the ask and then make the ask, we always say, okay, one of the hardest things then is being silent after, right? And I say, well, who do you think has the easiest or hardest time? And we look at the asking styles. The extroverts have a harder time being quiet than the introverts. It's easier for us to sit back and make that space unless we're nervous and we might fill the space a bit, but it, it is more natural. A, a friend of mine had a, a terrible tragedy and a number of us were at the house supporting her. And one of the women was saying, I just, I feel like I, everything I say is wrong, right? Everything I say is wrong. I don't know what to say. And I said, you know, you don't always have to say something. We're here. And our presence is so important to our friend. And she was funny. She said, yeah, you, you actually are doing a good job of that. Cause she realized I hadn't talked to that point. Everyone was talking and, and I hadn't said anything. And, and all I said was then the silence is important. Yeah. Very funny. It, it actually really resonated with her. Yeah, absolutely. Just it's interesting too, when you create that space and that pause, the donor may answer and there's a pause and then there's a deeper sharing. Yes. Because you've given them the time to go deeper into their memories. And so it's- Especially if it's an introvert. Yes. I've only in the last few years realized I have a bad habit. And that is when I'm in a quick conversation at a party or something, which I'm not that often, but let's say I'm in this, right? I throw out an answer and then I repeat myself immediately because that first answer wasn't complete enough for me. It wasn't articulate enough. It wasn't whatever. Here, our rhythm is allowing me to think and proceed and give a long answer, but that's not always the case. And then I, I go back and, and try and fill in the blanks when I've spoken too quickly. Well, that's what would happen with an introverted donor if we're rapid fire with our questions and aren't giving them enough, enough time to answer. Mm, great distinction. Yeah. Let's talk about your book, Asking Styles. Okay. You distinguish four asking styles. Yes. The Rainmaker, which is the analytic extrovert. Mm -hmm. The go-getter, the intuitive extrovert. The kindred spirit, which is the intuitive introvert, and mission yeah. controller, the analytic introvert. Yes. Talk yeah. us through the framework <laughs> and the introversion, extroversion dynamics. That yes. Per your description, the styles are based on two attributes, the extroversion, introversion, right? How we interact and the analytic intuitive, how we think. And from this, we get the four quadrants. And I bet this is sounding sort of familiar to many because whether you're Myers-Briggs proponent or DISC or any of these personality assessments, there are similarities among them all. This was developed specifically for us. 
And the idea was to understand that there are different types of askers, that there are different ways to go about this, that of course there are some best practices that we teach. You want your story to be passionate and personal to who you are, and you want to talk about vision and impact, and you don't want to ask for a gift at the beginning of the meeting. You want to ask in the middle and all these, there are best practices, but because it's about relationships, there's so much that we can do as ourselves, as the human beings we are based on our personality. And we wanted people to in, embrace all that. Yes, we have the analytic intuitive, the, the analytic extrovert, the rainmaker. When people think fundraiser, that's the quadrant they're always thinking. The competitive driven person who's, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to make the sale, I'm going to close the gift, I'm going to raise a million dollars. Very strategic, doesn't take things personally, all objective. Okay, I got to know here, I'm on to the next person. Fact-based. And those are great skills for fundraising, right? Great. And not to say no one else has some of those skills, but what are the courses? Then we have our go-getter, our intuitive extrovert, big picture thinker, the I'm here that you talked about earlier. Ta-da! Um, lots of energy going up to lots of people, getting them excited, sh sharing their enthusiasm, makes friends easily. Also important to fundraising. Very helpful. Our kindred spirits. I'm a classic kindred spirit, an intuitive introvert, feelings oriented. So finally, closing in on my 61st birthday, I am comfortable with the fact that I am an HSP, as they call it, a, a hypersensitive person. I am very sensitive. I have been since the day I was born. I'm always going to be sensitive. I'm going to try and keep that in mind. <laughs> but everything comes from the heart. Everything is personal. I get hurt easily. And because I'm so sensitive and kindred spirits in general, because we're so sensitive, we tend to be sensitive to others. We're watching how others feel and react. And we want people to feel they're being heard and that we're attentive to them. And these are great skills for fundraising. And then we have our mission controller, the analytic introvert. The mission controller always plans very detailed and very observant of the four styles, the one most likely to sit back and observe and watch what's going on. Not to say a rainmaker can't be caring and, and a kindred spirit can't have a, be goal-oriented, but we all have our strengths. We also actually have secondary styles, the way it's set up. So I'm actually a, a kindred spirit mission controller, which means very much that introvert, but I have an analytic side. I have an economics degree. I have an MBA and I have a master's in architecture. Another story I've never practiced, but all very quantitative, right? And numbers and such. And I'm very organized. I always lead with the heart, but if something needs to be organized and no one else is doing it, I'll do it because I can and I feel bad if it doesn't get done. Mm -hmm. So that's me. Now tell me, which of these do you see yourself in? Or do well, you see yourself with a little more go-getter or rainmaker, but on the you know, intro side? What's interesting, because I, I did take the test and it okay. surprised me. I thought I would show up more as a go-getter with the kindred spirit as a okay. secondary kind of, but yeah. I... I tested as uh, primary mission control or mission control, 
and kindred spirit as a secondary. Ah, wow. More, more analytic. More analytic. Who knew? Than you thought. Well, I, have you asked anyone what they think of your result? Someone who knows you well? Not yet, but I shall. We probably have some listeners uh, who will make comments. Yes. And feel free, as you learn more about this, to make comments on and how here's true it seems. how, though the now I'm obviously, it's a leading question, but here's often how we can tell who the mission controllers are. They take the quiz the most amount of times because they want to make sure the result is right. Oh, I'm going to do it one more time just to make sure it's correct. Go getters. I took it once. Sure. That's me. Fine. Whatever. We see the statistic inside the computer, if you will, and mission controllers take it. So were you thinking maybe you should take it again? Maybe. Yeah. I was thinking maybe I should. Okay. So you're a mission controller. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't see. Yes. (laughs) That's so great. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. You write about partnering with others, you know, so we have our primary and our secondary, and oftentimes we will visit with donors. We'll call on them with our executive director or a board member, or maybe even a peer, right? A peer-to-peer fundraising is always a great idea if you get the right match. And we're all different. Talk a little bit about knowing how to complement one another, these different asking styles. It turns out that one of the greatest benefits of the asking styles is, is to use them to understand the team. Whenever I do board training, I have everyone take it beforehand. And then I graph out where everyone is because it gives you a sense of where the board is strongest, where it leans. And in our team, executive director of development, executive director, chair of the board, if you know your styles, you you can have these aha moments about how you are working together well or where you might be clashing, just like Andrea and I did, because she's a go-getter. And we've learned, ah, that's why a certain, right, at, at a certain point, we're frustrated with each other. Great. Now we can figure out how to deal with that. And it works for partnering and for donors as well. So- Let's assume where your results were right and your mission controller, kindred spirit, I'm kindred spirit, mission controller. Okay. So you'd bring probably more of the analytic. I'd bring uh, more of the touchy feely. Maybe what happens if our donor is a rainmaker or a go-getter, right? And people say, well, how do I know? There are ways to know what someone's like by the questions they ask, by whether they ask you for material in advance or not by whether they take your phone call or not. We haven't talked about phone email. That's another interesting dichotomy. Or whether they like writing, whether they show up to your special events or not. Do they talk at board meetings or not? You can figure out a lot. So let's say we know we're going to see a rainmaker. How do we work together, right? First of all, like how do we make sure since we're both quiet that the rainmaker donor doesn't take over the agenda? Because yes, we want to know what the donor needs to get out of the meeting. We want the meeting to meet their needs, but we're running the meeting. We're the organization and we're there to learn and we have to make sure we're learning, right? So how do we make sure? And whoa, well, the Rainmaker is more analytic and Tammy, you're more analytic. So maybe you'll make the case because the analytic side comes a little more naturally to you. And I'll sit back and listen. 
right? And maybe I'll ask certain questions which are a little more touchy-feely, right? And you'll ask more analytic questions or field more analytic questions. Mm -hmm. So we can learn how to work with each other and to work with our donor. And it, it, it helps keep our field from feeling like the vast unknown. Because I think one of the challenges in our field is there is so much information out. There is so much we could learn. There's so much prep work we could do. And how much can we really do? And how many people can we see? And how, how do we sort of make this feel like it's just not a stab in the dark, this work we're doing with our donors? And I think using a framework like this to help structure your meeting and understand how it might go in advance will give you some comfort and direction and a framework that takes some of the guesswork out of our field. I agree. I think that it really equips you if you apply it. And again, this is probably my mission controller coming out. If I were going to block the time to plan the strategy for the visit, anticipating the style of the donor and what I might proactively put on the agenda or bring to the meeting to anticipate their need and their desires. But that's the very planful mission controller in me. But if I were meeting perhaps with the intuitive introvert, that's probably the most polar opposite to me, right? Uh, The intuitive extrovert would be. Yes, the go-getter, the intuitive extrovert. Go-getter, rainmaker would be the opposite of your mission controller kindred spirit. Yes. Yes. So just interesting and to know, like, this is where having someone who is more in that feeling space, mm-hmm. maybe a little more spontaneous, less structured, could really contribute to the meeting. Yes. Yeah. Really move the, yeah. the agenda forward. And I yeah. love it. I love it. And it just takes some intentionality, which we, should all, which, which we should be more intentional in our work. And I think that's one of the challenges we face because there's so much work and we're typically under-resourced. Absolutely virtually all the time, except for the biggest institutions. And they'd still claim maybe that they are under-resourced, but of the million and a half nonprofits, 80% or more have a budget under a million dollars, right? I mean, the percentage of organizations with a budget under a quarter of a million dollars is huge. There's no director of development there. And in most people have one development person. I'm always asking how many full-time development staff you have. Let's be real about this. If you have one or two, how much time can they really be devoting to individual, which is where the asking styles and much of what we're talking about comes into play the most? Not a lot. And might we add with virtually no training? Yes. Yes. Right. I've never had any. I mean, I started in 1984. There really wasn't much out there. There were a few books. There was no internet. I feel so old talking like that, but there was no internet. Like prehistoric and times. Exactly. I just I, chiseled I out what I wanted to say on the stone and I put on my toga and off I went. No, I don't know. And I learned while doing. And today there are lots of webinars and podcasts and things to learn from, but we still don't get nearly the training that people in other fields get. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So between that and the time, We've got to have something that helps make this doable and planful for us. Yes, yes. 
And so I'll just say to our listeners that for the bargain price of 1995, you've got a wealth of knowledge here in this fantastic book, Fundraising for Introverts, that will not only help you understand your own strengths and your own superpowers at a new level, but that of your team, that of your colleagues, even that of your donors. Mm -hmm. So it's just a brilliant piece of writing. And I thank you and I congratulate you on this body of work. I will say I'm very proud of this book. Yes, I've written a few others. You say, how do I have the time? And I was going to joke, that's because I don't market them because I don't like being external. So it's not like you know, <laughs> I spend all the time just writing them, not selling them. But this time around, I'm so passionate about this book that I'm putting myself out there. I actually have gone on Facebook personally for the first time to promote the book because I do think it can be so helpful in our field. And I hope it starts really a movement towards appreciating introverts, understanding us, working together for this common good, and making sure that everyone who wants to help sees that they can, that they do have the personality to be involved in our amazing nonprofit sector. Yeah. So beautiful. Just beautiful. Thank you. All right, Brian, I want to ask you another question, kind of taking a a little bit of a different turn. You Mm -hmm. mentioned uh, Jerry Panis. I met Jerry at the very beginning of my fundraising career. I had spent 15 years in consultative sales in technology. Uh-huh. And then I made the decision, like, I really want to make a difference. And, you know, I went back to the Indiana University's fundraising yeah. school, got my certification, cool. you know, as a mission controller would do. At, at that time when there was not the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy and other great institutions. So all that to say, I signed a Girl Scout Council. Development director position had been empty for about 18 months. So essentially, they were kind of desperate. And they gave me a shot. And I went to the Girl Scout USA training mm-hmm. center in New York. And Jerry was the keynote speaker. Yeah. So that, what a great way to start, right? Yeah. And I took my Jerry Panis book, one of his many, and I waited in a long line. I was the last person. And I told him how I just made this shift. And, you know, he could make you feel so special. And he signed the book and he told me, he says, Tammy, you have gone from success to significant. That was Jerry. He was a masterful listener, could make you feel so special. And so fast forward to now, Uh, Alongside uh, Doug Dillon, I'm dean of the Institute for Charitable Giving, which, of course, was founded by Jerry Panis and Bill Sturdivant and is carried forward by uh, Felicity Panis, Jerry's wife, who is, of course, so dear dear and so amazing and kind and brilliant in her own right. And I know that toward the end of Jerry's life, you sat down with him. Yeah. Oh, and you recorded Conversations with Jerry and Brian, which I think of as the fundraiser's version of Tuesdays with Maury. Uh, Which, yes. And I know that book well because Mitch Album was as a fellow alum of my university and I met him years ago. It's funny. Yeah, it is one of those, you know, getting to sit down with someone in the twilight Mm. of their life, someone who's made such a huge impact 
I was, yeah. it was just so fortuitous because I met Jerry much later than you did probably. And, and he did a webinar for Andrea and me shortly after we started asking matters. And then he did a second. And at some point, you know, I'd actually said, you know, why are you doing these for me? Whatever. He was just, you know, he was a mensch that way. And he wrote the forward to my first book, which was amazing that he did that. And then I had this idea because, you know, Jerry had written all these books, but not everyone is reading a book these days. And the whole world had changed late in his career. So he had done these webinars with me, but he didn't, there wasn't a lot of him on tape, like of, of him talking. And, and so he agreed it was, it was late in his life and he didn't want to be on camera by the time we did it, but he agreed to let me come up to his and Felicity's home and sit at the table. And I was so intimidated. Who wouldn't <laughs> be? Except their I? warmth. What? Except we, for their warmth, but there's yes, the legend um, of him, of course. Yeah. I would yes, have been. And actually, the house was so warm. It was almost like a farmhouse and woodsy. And Felicity cooked each time I came up and we sat at the kitchen table. Oh. And then after lunch, she would leave and we would just sit there and record. And it was really warm, but I thought, oh my, I, I'm, you know, there's, I'm just going to sound like an idiot talking to this man who, has 70 years experience and has written 21 books. It took until at least the third session for me to feel really comfortable. And it's funny because Jerry dominated the earlier conversations because it took a while for me to feel comfortable inserting any of my own ideas. (laughs) (laughs) But it was really, I was very lucky because so many people had spent so much time with him in their lives that I had not. But I just happened to be the one there at the end. And that was incredible. So incredible. What an honor. Yeah. yeah. And those are available. They're free to anyone. I think you can just go to the Asking Matters site and and find them under resources. And I think they're somewhere else. And every once in a while, we make a plug for them at Asking Matters and make sure everyone's aware because they're pretty special. Pretty special. So of all the wisdom that Jerry shared with you, what's the one thing you will never forget? No one's ever listened themselves out of the gift. I find myself quoting him on that all the time. No one's ever listened themselves out of a gift. Yeah. Love it. Love it. All right. At the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire questions just to give a little bit of extra insight to our listeners. Are you ready? Well, I don't know. Rapid fire isn't an introvert stuff. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> but I'll try. All right. How about moderate fire? There okay. Moderate deep fire. Thinking, like deep thinking questions. How about okay. that? That's more really more okay. down. All right. Number one. And maybe this is in addition to no one's ever listened themselves out of a gift. What's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? The best fundraising advice I've ever received would be that it's about building relationships. Yeah. Fantastic. What book do you recommend to our listeners and why? Quiet, quiet, Susan Cain's quiet because, well, you know, our listeners, I hope our listeners include a lot of extroverts. I hope we're not just talking to ourselves, right? Because the extroverts really need to come to understand us. We understand you. We've been watching you, but we need you to understand us. And I would say they should read that book too, but quiet, 
really was a revelation and gave me so much that I now have brought to my book. So that's the book I'd recommend. It's not a fundraising book, but it's a book that's really key to many of us. Yeah. I think it's key to relationships. Just a great book. I recently got it on Audible. Oh, does Susan narrate it on Audible? I was actually just at a retreat in New Jersey and heard about it for the first time. Ah. So I downloaded it, but I promised okay. myself I was going to finish the Audible I'm on. Okay. So I okay. haven't listened to it yet. Okay. Let I, me know. I, I hope so. I will. Yeah. I definitely will. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraiser must possess? Listening. Yes. The ability to develop relationships and passion for their cause. If you're not passionate about what you're fundraising for, it is just going to be too difficult. It would be a slog for sure. Yeah. What's your favorite fundraising application or tool? An Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> so let me explain. It, it can, it, this can all be so overwhelming, this fundraising work and all the individual work. You know, the nice thing about foundations, let's say, is you've had a couple of big grants. Okay. So, you know, you've got six, you've got eight of them. With individuals, you've got a lot more who add up to a lot, they're the biggest piece of the pie, right? But there are a lot of things to remember. And I have always personally found the CRMs a little overwhelming. And I have, since the beginning of time, had my key donors on a spreadsheet, who they are, what my next step is, when I plan to do it. And that keeps me moving all those relationships ahead. So to me, it's a basic spreadsheet. Very good. Now, what's this yours? Next... Can I ask? <laughs> or uh, this is just rapid fire towards. Oh, me. no. I think that. So, my favorite application, I'm a big fan of the gift chart. Uh, yes. You know, again, I think that it takes like what can seem overwhelming and puts it in context. Yes. Bite sized pieces. There's a yeah. plan. Let's yeah. just work the plan. Yeah. I sound like a mission controller again, don't I? You do. You do. I, I like gift charts for capital campaigns in particular, so people can really understand, right, where the money is coming from and why we're spending a lot of time here and there. Though I've been reading lately about some people who are saying we need to get rid of the gift chart. I'm not so sure. There yeah. was an article recently. In, in the Chronicle. Of, in the Chronicle. I thought yeah. it was. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're going to go into a whole other conversation. I, okay. But I feel like. There's a room for both. I think that their case was don't just pay attention to your largest donors. Look at loyalty. Look at other criteria. And I totally believe in that. Right. But the gift chart is a mechanical thing. Yes. They're different. I agree with you. Right. I agree. Okay. Okay. All right. So this next question, Brian, could get you in a lot of trouble because you speak at many conferences, but I'm just going to ask the question of all the conferences. Who's your favorite and why? It's actually easy. And I I hope no one else will be dissed by this, but it's NATO, North American YMCA Development Organization's National Conference. I've gone, I think it's in Denver this spring. I think it will be my eighth in a row. I love the YMCA people are so great all over the country. There is always this warm feeling. And for me, it's about, right, it's feelings. It's not what I'm going to learn. It's not who I'm meeting. And Mary, who is in charge of it, is a big hugger. 
And during COVID, the first year was canceled, right? And then they did virtual. And then when we came back together, she said, I'm a hugger. And, you know, you had all these signs as to whether you like hugging or not. And I got this huge hug from Mary. And I look forward to seeing her smiling face each time I go into the energy of the wise. I love it. And I love that they bring me back every year. I like the consistency of it. It's like building a a deeper relationship, right? I I go here once, I do this AFP philanthropy day. But the idea of going back is very meaningful to me. So yeah, that's the easiest question you've asked. (laughs) So for you, it's like a family reunion of sorts. It is. And Kristen's there and Pam Hearn is there. And I know a lot of people now, Margie Redlin, who I just, I know so many of the names. And yeah, it's like an old home week. So I enjoy that. I love it. All right. Last question. Okay. Knowing what you know now about fundraising, what advice would you give your younger self as you were just getting started in the profession? Believe in my gut. I had a gut, but then I kept second guessing myself of this whole, gee, I'm not this, gee, I'm not that. So in a way, I guess I wish I I had a better understanding early on and had learned more early on instead of figuring it out over a long period of time. I'm an experiential learner by nature. I'm not one to take a lot of classes and really study, but I would have benefited from it in here. I think it would have given me a different perspective, certain tools, and a little more confidence early on. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing There is a benefit to learning. Yeah. Yes. And trusting yourself. And trusting yourself. Right. But that, Right. So having more of a gut, but also getting some of the tools, I think, down pat earlier. Love it. Brian, you're amazing. Thanks for joining us. It's been a delight. Yeah. Thank thank you you very much. And I wish, I just want to wish everyone who's doing this work the best because it's easy for us to talk about it and it's a lot harder to do the work. And I don't know if you feel this way as a consultant, but sometimes I think, oh my, I'm just telling people what to do. And it's just not easy and it's easier to tell them what to do. But I really appreciate everyone who's out there doing it with us. Amen. 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 If you want to learn more about Brian, his incredible work, or to follow him on social media, will it include links? So his handles in the show notes, as well as links to his latest book, Fundraising for Introverts all your books, and the other resources that we've talked about today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a Fundraising Transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransform.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars. 
including a single gift of $27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.